Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. This is the California Report. Good morning. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. Investigations are underway after a horrendous crash killed 13 people about 10 miles north of the U.S.-Mexico border yesterday. There were 25 people in an SUV which collided with a gravel hauling big rig in the Imperial County town of Holtville. We spoke with reporter Faith Pino, who's covering the story for the LA Times. We are still kind of gathering all the details about this, but it sounds like These 25 people were crammed into the SUV. There were only two seats actually in the vehicle. It was a 1997 Ford Expedition, which typically carries up to eight people. But this vehicle only had the driver's seat and the passenger seat, and all of the other chairs were taken out to fit all the other people inside. There have been no confirmations that any of the people in the SUV were either farm workers or crossing the border necessarily. However, several of the people in the SUV were Mexican nationals. This is confirmed by the Mexican consulate. We don't know where they were headed or where they were coming from, but the Los Angeles Times has investigated border pursuits near the border by the U.S. Border Patrol agents, and in more than 500 pursuits, one in three ended in a crash. There is absolutely no evidence that this was a pursuit. In fact, Customs Border Patrol has said multiple times that there was no pursuit of this vehicle, but there has been kind of a history of crashes around this area, and the National Transportation Safety Board is going to be joining the California Highway Patrol to be investigating this incident, and we should be learning more then. That was Faith Pino with LA Times. The National Transportation Safety Board will join the California Highway Patrol in investigating the accident. Meanwhile, volunteers around Southern California are stepping up to help seniors and other eligible people find coveted COVID-19 vaccination appointments. KPCC reporter Carla Javier spoke with one of them. By day, Candace Kim works as a project director focused on the effects of global trade. But by night, I've become a volunteer vaccine navigator. It all started when she helped her parents, who aren't too tech savvy and who speak Korean, navigate the appointment systems, which are largely online and in English or Spanish. She developed a process, check the state's appointment system, then the counties and the cities, then nearby clinics and pharmacies, repeat and repeat, and eventually... It worked. She got her parents' appointments. And then she thought, Well, they live in a senior apartment building of a lot of people just like them. Why don't I continue helping people? And she's not alone. There are other volunteer vaccine navigators like her. And they see the barriers firsthand. Language, access to internet, and the time to check all the different pages over and over again. Her advice? Keep trying. 
She says you should also remember to ask yourself. If you're going to a community that has almost no resources, are you taking away resources from that community? And reach out to your vulnerable neighbors to see if they need help too. For the California Report, I'm Carla Javier in Los Angeles. Seven California counties, including San Francisco, have moved to a less restrictive coronavirus tier. That means restaurants and movie theaters can reopen for indoor service, but at a reduced capacity. Many business owners are celebrating the move, but some remain wary about reopening too quickly. One of them is Yuka Iroi, who co-owns San Francisco's Cassava restaurant with her husband. Iroi told me she's going to err on the side of caution and wait before welcoming customers back for indoor dining. Given the case numbers, I feel that it's still a little bit risky, but we we like the, the downward trend. But I think it's still premature to open indoor, especially when Dr. Fauci is saying that it is premature. So have you and your husband decided to just stay closed for indoor dining until you're comfortable reopening? Yes. So we're actually not even open for outdoor dining yet. Um, We're quite concerned with new variants. So currently, we're only open for takeout, although outside dining is allowed in San Francisco. And we are waiting for our staff to fully get vaccinated and then open dining service for outside. And indoor dining, we will still be cautious and and see, you know, when we feel it's right for us. And what about your employees? Are they all aboard the decision to keep the restaurant closed, at least for the time being? All of our staff agree to that. So they're on board with the decision that let's wait on, you know, dining service till, you know, that everybody that's comfortable getting vaccines is finished. So it was more of a like entire team decision. And then all of our staff is, you know, getting sick pay when they're not working. I've raised their hourly rate from $17, which is a minimum wage in San Francisco to 20 right now. And because they are getting a lot less than before, you know, they're getting unemployment assistance as well on the basis of a reduced income. So everybody is financially, you know, yes, we are struggling, but not on the verge of becoming homeless or anything like that. But then if we harm our health, that that could be like lifelong or like lasting effect. I don't think I can forgive myself for making that decision. Could you change your mind? I mean, if you see restaurants around you reopening and things seem pretty safe, would you reconsider your own timeline to reopen? We're going to stick to the plan. So we're going to wait for the vaccines to be finished. Most of us are going to be finished before end of March. And then, you know, we should wait for like two weeks or so to settle in. So we're thinking that our, you know, the way we're going to open outside dining is probably like early to mid-April. Everybody's on board with that. All right. Yuka Iroi of Cassava Restaurant in San Francisco. I really wish you and your staff all the best as you navigate reopening. And thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Saul. Meanwhile, in Southern California, both Los Angeles and Orange Counties appear to be on the brink of moving to that less restrictive tier as well. Here's L.A. County Health Officer Dr. Muntu Davis speaking about the county's adjusted daily rate of new COVID-19 infections at a vaccine town hall last night. Our case numbers have continued to fall. We expect that next week we may be at seven, uh, and then we have to hold that for two weeks before we can uh, consider anything less restrictive and move to the red tier. 
Uh, so we're hoping that it's, it's coming soon in order to have some uh, modifications. In Orange County, health officials say they could move to the less restrictive tier by St. Patrick's Day. That's March 17th. Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. California was the first state in the nation to require gender diversity in corporate boardrooms. Specifically, a 2018 law requires publicly traded companies to have at least one female director on their board or face a fine. So how's the effort to get more women in the boardroom going? KCRW's Tara Atrian has this update. Senate Bill 826, also known as the Woman on Boards measure, is one attempt to diversify corporate leadership. And compliance with the law is on the rise. That's according to a new report from the Secretary of State, Shirley Weber. 311 publicly held businesses with an executive base in California have at least one female director on their board. That's nearly all of the corporations that filed a disclosure statement this time around, and a jump from the roughly 280 reported last March. Weber, whose office is tasked with tracking compliance, said the increase was important to ensuring a, quote, equitable economy and inclusive California. But there's a second phase of the law that companies will have to look ahead to. By the end of 2021, they need to up their gender diversity even more. Boards with five directors total will need two women. Directorates with six or more heads will need at least three women leaders. For the California Report, I'm Tara Atrion in Los Angeles. Repairs continue on a section of Highway 1 on Big Sur's south coast. A few weeks ago, a powerful rainstorm washed out both lanes of the scenic highway. That's a lifeline to local residents and critical to tourism. KAZU's Erica Mahoney went to see how repair work is going. Since the washout in late January, Caltrans crews have been figuring out how they'll rebuild the section of Highway 1. There's a huge gash in the roadway and repairs will cost about $11.5 million. Caltrans will fill the 150-foot chasm with dirt and build a new road on top. Kevin Drabinski with Caltrans says of all the roads on the Central Coast, Highway 1 experiences the most large-scale damage events. 
I know that within the last five and a half years, we've spent approximately $200 million just on the major events. But Drabinsky says repairing it each time is worth it. There's nothing like Highway 1 that hugs the coast for 60 miles and gives you spectacular seascapes on one side and forested mountains on the other. Big Sur residents know it's not if the highway is going to close, but when and for how long. Fortunately, in this case, businesses south and north of the closure are accessible and open, including the town of Big Sur. It's lunchtime at Nepenthe Restaurant. Owner Holly Fassett, who grew up in Big Sur, says mudslides have always been a problem. You really learn to become a survivor. 2017 was a particularly difficult year, when a downbridge to the north and a massive landslide to the south landlocked residents in between for months. Still, Fassett loves the highway. It's the main way in and out for residents, and it's vital to Big Sur businesses. I think over the years we've pretty much learned, and I'm sure the other businesses have learned, that if people can get here, they're coming. With repair work now underway, Caltrans hopes to fully reopen Highway 1 early this summer. For the California Report, I'm Erica Mahoney in Big Sur. And that's the California Report for Wednesday, March 3rd, a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez in L.A. Thanks so much for listening and have a good day. Support for the California Report comes from Paint Care. Now with 800 drop-off sites in California where households and businesses can recycle their leftover paint. More at paintcare.org. Stanford Medicine. Protecting your health and providing dependable care with safe in-person appointments and video visits. StanfordHealthCare.org slash AdaptingCare. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Ocean Institute, working to advance the frontiers of ocean research, sharing the connection between life on land and life at sea with everyone everywhere. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. 